I want to introduce our speaker this morning. Um, uh, I, as I told you, I've been uh, in uh, Southern California the last two weeks um, working on a uh, doctorate of ministry uh, degree, and uh, so you have, you have allowed me to be gone, and, and that has been uh, uh, just a wonderful experience. I'd uh, love to talk to you uh, about it sometime if you ask me. Uh, but I just got home yesterday, and uh, I, am, I was not going to be ready to preach this morning, and so uh, I asked uh, uh, Dr. Mark Krause. I work with Mark um, at the college. Uh, he is my boss, um, so I need to say a bunch of really nice things. Uh, no, I tell you what, uh, there is not a, a, a better man uh, that could be my boss than, than Dr. Mark Krause. Um, you know, five years ago when I came, um, you know, he has mentored me along the way. Uh, we have talked scripture together, um, and he has taught me many things when it comes to, to, to the Bible. And, uh, and it is a privilege, it is a privilege to be able to work uh, with this guy. So uh, he is going to be bringing the message today, and uh, so I want you to welcome um, Dr. Mark Krause. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. You know, Mike and I uh, have developed really great friendship. I, I thought it was going to be a little bit strained here a couple weeks ago because Mike's a great big Minnesota bike, Vikings fan, and I'm actually a Seattle Seahawks fan. So now I'm, I'm wearing Broncos, although forgive me, it's, it's Boise State Broncos, but it's the closest I could come because everybody in, in America wants the Broncos to win unless you live in Boston today, right? Because everyone hates the Patriots. So uh, my, my daughter and son-in-law live in... Uh, in Boston, so I'm probably going to be texting with Brad all day today if the Patriots get ahead. Hey, Dad, did you see the Patriots? Just so anyway, I'll put up with that. But I did have to put up with a little bit of smack talk uh, driving up today from Mike's daughter Lydia about apparently the perception was that the Seahawks got lucky in winning that game. I and it, it wasn't, but you know, I almost went to that game. I was supposed to be up in Minnesota. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to go to the game. And uh, then I realized it was going to be five below zero, wind chill, 35 below. And I was going to pay 200 bucks for a scalp ticket, walk in there, sit there for five minutes, and then leave. So uh, probably wasn't a good plan. But some friends of mine went uh, to the game, and they got tickets uh, online for $30 to two, for, two, for two tickets. So everybody in Minneapolis was dumping those tickets because it was so cold. Um, Anyway, hey, I, I was wondering this morning, how many of you have these? How many of you have Fitbits? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, just a couple. Yeah. <laughs> so this is something my, my wife got me two Christmases ago for, for Christmas, you know, and we're kind of competing a little bit on how many steps we get. She always smokes me, but my, the problem was I broke mine. I have no idea. It just quit working, and so... She took it, my wife Susan took it, and she went through all the Fitbit stuff, and then she emailed them, and they sent me a new one. So here's the problem. I think I already broke this one, too. <laughs> so Fitbit has a new, uh, like, it's sort of like an iPhone watch thing with a big screen on it, Fitbit Blaze, and I'm like, I, I should, 
just get a Fitbit Blazer. She goes, I'm not letting you get a $200 toy. You'll just break that one too. So, Wives are always smarter than we are. You know, yeah, there's a certain wisdom there. Um, I want to talk about newness, though, today. This is the theme. This is my new Fitbit. I want to talk about a kind of newness that doesn't break. And um, I preached here uh, a few weeks ago on Revelation chapter 22. And actually, it's just not necessarily by plan, but we're going to go back one chapter and I'm going to preach on Revelation chapter 21 today. And uh, one of the brothers here said, you know, I thought your message was, uh, was going to just be a history lesson. And I remember one time I was preaching and a, a guy said, you know, you preach a lot like a college professor. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a compliment or like a shot. But anyway, uh, I want to give you a little introduction. You want to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're actually going to run through the whole chapter this morning, but I want to give you a little background, and I want to take you back in history to the year 410, so a long time ago, 1,600 years ago. In the year 410, one of the most shocking events in the history of the world took place. The city of Rome had ruled as the undisputed master of the Western world for over 500 years, really. But in that year, the year 410, the city was surrounded and was besieged by the barbarian army of Alaric the Goth, the Gothic king. Now, they call him a king. This is really not too far off from what's been going on in the Middle East with ISIS and the, the terrorists. They, the, these Goths were like terrorists, although, interestingly, they were supposedly Christians. We were talking in the Sunday school class this morning about what makes you a Christian. So Rome is by now the great Christian city, the eternal city. It's the seat of the Bishop of Rome who has began to have authority over all the, the churches of Europe, the, uh, not quite the Pope yet, but becoming like that. The, the Roman emperor at the time was a fellow by the name of Honorius, Honor, I-U-S, Honorius, but name didn't fit very well. He was the son of the great Christian emperor Theodosius. He was the heir to the throne of the great Caesars, Augustus, Caligula, Nero, Domitian, those men who seemed invincible and omnipotent to the first readers of the book of Revelation that we're going to look at, these powerful emperors. But Onarius, despite his name, he abandoned the city. He retreated to the safety of another city. And then, after he left, he refused to negotiate with, with the uh, barbarians, with these terrorists. And he took his army with him. So Rome was left defenseless, and for, for the first time since its founding, over 1,100 years earlier, it fell to an invading army. Over a 1,000 years, the city of Rome had never fallen to an invasion, but it did that time. Alaric and his troops plundered and wasted the city for three days. The Roman Empire of the West was finished. The dark ages of medieval Europe began. They lasted for another thousand years. And in the aftermath, many sought to lay the blame on all of this, the, the fact that Rome had uh, fallen, that the reason was Rome had become a Christian city. It had forsaken its ancient pagan gods who supposedly protected the city. So Roman had, Rome really hadn't been a Christian city for that long, historically, it had a much longer history of being a pagan city with all these city gods, the, the, the female deity Roma, the, the goddess of the city, 
uh, Jupiter, uh, these powerful gods that supposedly the pagan gods that protected the city, they abandoned them and became Christians. And according to this view, the traditional Roman gods were angry at having been abandoned for Christianity. It's in this, the middle of all of this that one of the greatest Christians of all time, a fellow by the name of Augustine, writes a book in response to this. The book, many of you have seen it or maybe even read it, called uh, Civitas Dei, The City of God. And in this book, Augustine argues that there are two cities. He says there is the city of the world made up of those with allegiance to Satan. They are evil, and they have allegiance to Satan, evil, and self. And on the other hand, there's the city of God made up of those who deny self and give allegiance to God and to Christ. Augustine says, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Polar opposites here. Augustine said the one lifts up its head to its own glory. The other one says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. And so Augustine argues that earthly kingdoms always rise and fall according to the plans of God. Even the most powerful like Rome, will not endure forever because there really are two cities, two realities going on. And eventually all of these cities, he says, will pass away and only the city of God will remain. And what he really did without knowing it, Augustine really in some ways was the first true historian of Europe. He laid the foundation of the understanding of history for the next thousand years, really up until this present day in some ways. And here's, what he, here's the foundation. This is what Augustine, his conclusion. Very simple. Great empires of history will pass away. They don't endure forever. And we can look back on this. The Roman Empire was already disintegrating during Augustine's day. Or later in the 19th century, Napoleon's French Empire, which was to be understood as the, the new Roman Empire reborn, and yet it didn't last very long either. The British Empire, on which the sun never set during its Victorian heyday, is Britain is an island off the coast of Europe and kind of a minor player in world affairs today. Or how about this one? Hitler's Third Reich, as he labeled it, Das Tausendjährerreich. The thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom, it lasted for 12 years and four months. Or many of you will remember the union of Soviet socialist republics, the workers' paradise created by some of the most godless people in the history of the world. It was called by President Ronald Reagan the evil empire the, the USSR lasted for about 70 years. Great empires of history will pass away. But why then today do we see more of the city of the world, it seems to me, than the city of God? I mean, our world is in such turmoil. Why, 
why more of the city of the world than the city of God? Aren't we ever going to get to the city of God? Let me try something with you if this can come up on the screen. Now, I, I am not capable of seeing these at all. Can anybody see this one? This is one of those 3D things, and if you stare at it long enough, they're... We had trouble getting this one to work, and I, I downloaded this, and they told me it was a really easy one. I think there's a, there are letters right in the middle of it, but I, my, my glasses have really different prescriptions, so I don't see uh, with both eyes together. I have no depth perception. I never can see these. Mike, can you see this one? Or... Okay, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, because here's the point. Just because I can't see it doesn't matter it isn't there. I know I've done these before where my wife, who sees these well, she's like, oh, well, those, those are dolphins or something. I go, really? You know, I can't, can't tell. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. The book of Revelation gives us a marvelous picture of the ultimate triumph of the city of God with some astounding promises for us. And maybe we don't see them yet, but that doesn't mean these aren't realities. So look with me to Revelation chapter 21. And I want to read just, uh, we're going to do this in five little sections, and this is going to go fast, so hold on, hold on to your seats here. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then this great verse. Don't miss this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so here we get the beginning of this picture of the city coming down, the new city coming down from heaven. And there is, this is what this means. There's no more separation. Heaven and earth are now the same. There is no separate place for God to dwell that is removed from his people. He dwells with his people, Revelation tells us, utterly, completely, and eternally. And the author tells us that the first things have passed away. Our existence is renewed and changed. There are no more tears. There is no more mourning or crying and no more pain and no more death. And oh, how we long for those days. I want to talk about something really tough and I preached this message in chapel on Friday because some of our students have really had issues with this um, in the last year or so. The millennial generation, I want to talk about a very touchy issue, and the issue is suicide. And let me frame this a little bit by telling you uh, something of my own experience. In 1994, so over 20 years ago, I was teaching at a college in Seattle, and I remember we received shocking news one April Sunday morning 
what had happened in a mansion on Capitol Hill, and that's a real high-end area of Seattle where there's a lot of mansions. Kurt Cobain, age 27, had been found dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And many of you may not even know who that is, and some of you might remember that, but at that time, this affected my students, my college students, profoundly. They couldn't understand why Kurt would do this. This was very real for them. It was a few miles from our campus that some of them had seen him in concert. I'm not trying to promote him as some godly person because he wasn't. But for them, for young people, he had had incredible success. He was the lead singer of a group called Nirvana that was one of the hottest groups, maybe the hottest group in America at that time. Changed the course of popular music. Kurt had fame and money beyond his wildest dreams. He had grown up in a dirt-poor fishing town on the Washington coast, and now he lived in a mansion in Seattle. And at that time, he had what would have been considered a, a glamorous and talented wife, Courtney Love, who had just given him a, a beautiful young daughter. And in, in the after, aftermath of all of this, in public discussion, there was a lot going on in Seattle discussing the suicide of Kurt Cobain. The, there was a columnist in the Seattle Times by the name of Eric Lassitus, and he wrote a particularly, I, I read his column every day. Well, it came out like twice a week. I read it whenever it came out. I really liked him, but kind of a nasty column, unsympathetic column about Cobain, in which he just said, you know, you're so selfish. This is the ultimate act of selfishness. What a bad person you are. Well, that prompted a letter, a response from a woman who's, who had a son also named Kurt, who had committed suicide two years earlier, and she wrote to the columnist, Eric Lassitus, and this Kurt, her Kurt, had done what people in Seattle do if they commit suicide. He had jumped off the Aurora Bridge. He'd been age 22, a student at the University of Washington. And he left this note in his pocket, they found, he said this, very short note. Her Kurt left this note and said, I'm sorry I had to do this, but my life has become full of terrible confusion. Please forgive me. I love you all. Love, Kurt. So Lastus did some investigation on this, and he talked to the family. Kurt's sister said, it made me real sad that he must have felt we'd all be better off without him. His mother, who probably is still doing this, but had begun to write him a letter every year on his birthday. She wrote, I've tried many, many, many times to feel the pain you were in. If it was anything like the pain I feel in losing you, I know it was unbearable. You see, suicide is where pain and mourning and depression and no hope win out. And yet the promise of Revelation is of a time when death and every other cause of human pain and suffering will be no more. And we need to hold on to that promise. Sometimes it's all that we have. So let's, let's read on a little bit. 
beginning with verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly and the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, for this is the second death. Everything is brand new. And the picture here is almost like cosmic house cleaning. All the trash is thrown out in verse 8. All all the bad people are are thrown into the lake of fire. And there's this fresh, life-giving water that's offered to those who believe. Everything is brand new. I'm kind of a a movie buck. I was talking to uh, uh, Dr. Bob, who's our English professor at the college. He's teaching a class on film studies this semester, and he's got like, I don't know, like 40 students in there. It's it's this huge, everybody wanted to take that. And um, we're talking about this a little bit, but all of the great movies have a climactic scene and a statement that epitomizes what the director is really trying to say in the production. It's, if you really want to understand, I mean, some movies don't really have that. They're just for fun. But uh, usually there's, there's a statement that the, the pr- producer or the director is trying to, to give. And in the wonderful Asian fairy tale, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, let me just give a little background here, and then we want to show a clip. You have the story of the great warrior... Li Mubai, who is played by the famous Chinese actor, maybe the most famous Chinese actor, uh, Yun Fat Chao. He has decided to change the course of his life and give up his warrior life. He's the greatest warrior in all of China, and he's going to give up his warrior life. His first step is to relinquish his famous sword, which is called the Green Destiny. This is the theme throughout the movie, the Green Destiny, what happens to it. And by doing this, he cuts himself off from his life as a warrior. He then plans to marry his devoted follower, who is uh, Yu Shu Lian, played by Michelle Yao. And this is a woman he has secretly loved for many years. Now, the story in the movie is that she had been the wife of his best friend, and he had been killed years ago, and he felt, for some reason that I don't understand, but Chinese honor, that he could not marry her. He, she could be his follower, but they had to keep their distance because he had to honor this relationship with his friend. Tragically, however, uh, Li Mubai must vanquish one last foe. It's the evil witch, the vo- uh, Jade Fox. One of the reasons I like this movie, it's got a woman bad guy. I don't know, there's something about that. I just got, like, you say the bad guys are men, you know, it's a woman bad guy. My wife doesn't like the movie. So uh, Li Mubai prevails over Jade Fox, but in the process... He is stung by one of her poison darts. I mean, he kills her, but he's got, he realizes he's got this poison dart in his neck. And so he lays and he waits to die. He is comforted by the infinitely sad woman, his follower, Yushu Lin. 
And let's, let's just watch the clip to see what happens. Growing older sometimes leads to great regret. We may realize what we have missed, what trivial things have filled our time, and we too may be tempted to cry, I have wasted my life. I'm not trying to vouch for the Chinese theology here, by the way. I have wasted my life. I have a plaque in my office. I meant to bring it this morning. Anyone who sees, enters my office, it's right behind where I sit, behind my right shoulder. It says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So what does the future hold for us? Revelation tells us we can have confidence because the promises of Revelation are trustworthy and true. And we will inherit these things. We will be the heirs of the riches of God. And most of all, we will have perfect, eternal fellowship with God. And the promise of Revelation is we will never grow old or have regrets in eternity. And so let's, let's read on a little bit here. Uh, verse 9. One of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a, a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels on the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lord. And so we'd have to really unpack this to understand all of it, but just a few things here. The number 12 shows up over and over again. In the book of Revelation, the number 12 is the number for the people of God. And the big picture here is the union of the people of God from the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the people of God from the New Testament, the 12 apostles, the church, the apostles of the Lamb. And all of it comes out as the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. And Augustine understood this very well in the city of God. The city of God is the people of God. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter if the barbarians and the terrorists come in and sack our city and many of us die. We're still the people of God. And there's a problem of balance to some degree that we deal with all the time. How far do we go in accepting others with whom we disagree when it comes to religion? We have a long history, by the way, of sectarian Christianity in this uh, country of feeling like other Christians are not really Christians. You know, the, the old joke is there was a person who makes it to heaven and he's given a tour of heaven by St. Peter and he noticed a, a kind of a walled city, this enclave in the distant on a hill. It's a, apart from everywhere, every, everyone else in heaven. And, and he asks about it and Peter explains, oh, oh, those are the Church of Christ people. They think they're the only ones up here, so we, we kind of leave them alone. But there's the other extreme. There are those who want to say that all religions are the same, and they want to prom that all religions somehow promote peace and love. It just isn't true. Hinduism is designed to promote a caste system that keeps the lower class caste impoverished. It's religiously designed for that. Buddhism, at least some types of Buddhism, is just a glorification of selfishness. Islam has many versions, but generally treats women as lesser beings, treats them with contempt, not humans created in the image of God. And yet the promise of revelation here is that the people of God, and this is by God's choice, will be united forever and ever. Let's read on just a little bit more here. Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick, just the wall. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold is pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, 
the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Talk about the pearly gates. Look what it says about them. Each gate was made of a single pearl. I mean, the pearly gates, we think it was a string of pearls or something. Each gate is a gigantic pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. So the city comes down to the high mountain, and the result is that God's mighty reign is established on earth. The city of God here has three aspects. It is a place, as we read, it's like paradise restored. We see a little more of this in the next chapter. At the creation, God gives humankind a garden. At the consummation, he gives them a city. Very interesting. Sometimes we beat up and hate the cities, and yet God gives us a city. Unimaginable luxury and perfection. Language just fails, John, here. And secondly, it's a people. It, it's four square. All the people. Four in, in the book of Revelation is the number for all the things of the earth. All the people, all the people of God are here. The number is 12. The number is 144. All the people of God, all these numbers that mean the people of God. And third, it is a presence. God is here. And that's really the last section that we'll look at. So I want to give you the promise here, the promise of revelation in this, in this part. God has prepared for us a place of reward that is far beyond anything we can imagine and far beyond anything we deserve. And so finally, the last section, beginning with verse 22, let's read it. I did not see a temple in this city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here we see the new Jerusalem. It will be new because of the presence of God. He takes the place of physical light. He is the sole focus of glory, and he exists in utter holiness. There's nothing unclean in this city. And you see again this great promise from the Old Testament. You will be my people and I will be your God. That comes first in the book of Leviticus, but also in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel over and over again. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so the promise of Revelation here is that there will be a time when nothing will stand in the way of true worship of God because that is our created purpose. Dr. Jim Dobson told the story he heard of a little black boy, age four, in a hospital in Chicago, age four, dying from cancer of the lungs. You know, it doesn't get much worse than that. It's about as bad as it gets. Four years old, dying of cancer of the lungs. His mother came to see him every day. She held him and she rocked him. And one morning when she came, the nurse took her aside before she entered the room. The nurse 
told her that the end was near because the little boy had been delusional, had been hallucinating the night before. He kept saying that he heard bells. No, he's not hallucinating, said his mama. You see, when it gets real bad for him, he can hardly breathe. I hold him real tight, and I rock him, and I tell him that I love him. I tell him if he listens real hard, he can hear the bells of heaven. Would you pray with me? Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Amen.